We're going to start this tonight or this morning in Mark chapter 7. And so if you'll turn there, we're going to eventually come to this scripture. What I want to talk about um, today and next week is I want to I want to look at three different types of believers. And I want to look at the believer who is living in Egypt, the believer who is living in the wilderness and the believer who is living in Canaan. These three types of believers and obviously, if you're a believer, you will find yourself in one of these while you're on the earth. You'll find yourself in one of these places. And so this is what we're going to address. And we'll probably get into uh, just the, the situation of Egypt today. But I want you to know that when man sinned against God, God had warned him in the day that you sin, you will die. And so man did. He spiritually died when he sinned and he disobeyed the Lord. And in the fall of man, what happened was God withdrew his spirit from the spirit of man, from his human spirit. He would go on to die naturally, what we call natural death and the physical. He would eventually die, but immediately he did die spiritually as God would withdraw his presence from the man. But I want you to understand, though man died spiritually, he was still very much spiritual. You have to understand that. When we talk about death, it is different in whatever you're connecting that with. You could talk about the death of a relationship. But even as it concerns man, man is a trinity. He is a body, soul, and spirit. And so when you talk about the death of man, there's something different when man's body dies as opposed to when man's spirit dies and man's soul being alienated from that. And basically it's one of the two aspects of man that dies. His body and his spirit, not his soul. His soul will continue forever like that. And so when we talk about man being dead or man spiritually dead, I think it is important what we mean by that. And so the Holy Spirit withdrew himself from the spirit of man. This left man in a very tragic situation. He was immediately filled with shame. He was immediately uncovered. He recognized that he was naked. And as a result of that, he was extremely fearful. He was afraid of God. He was afraid of deity. He was afraid of judgment. He was afraid of death. Everything that would come. Man being forsaken by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit withdrawing himself from the spirit of man, he would now be left to his own leadership. Man would have to decide for himself what he would do and what was best for him. His own leadership and understanding would make these decisions. And you see that through the Bible, especially in the book of Judges. It said, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was certainly made aware of that. A new wisdom came into the world, if you will. James identifies this wisdom in James chapter 3. He said this wisdom is earthly and it is sensual and it is devilish. But it is wisdom. It is what man thinks is best. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to man. But in the way, it, in the end, it leads to destruction. God said my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so man without God is left to himself. 
He's left to his own intelligence and his own reasonings. And as a result of this, tragedy has filled the world and it has filled humanity. Not only for the personal man who is making his own decisions, but regretfully, it is affecting everyone around the man. So just understand this, you as a person who has no presence of God in your life, no communion with the Holy Spirit, if you're spiritually dead, you are operating in a way where you are determining what is right and what is wrong. You are determining what is the best thing for you to do. You will always miss the will of God. You will always miss the mark, which is sin. And as a result of that, it will be tragic for you and it will be tragedy for everyone around you. A little child in a home who chooses their own way can bring havoc into the whole family. A person that goes off into addiction, making their own choices, that addiction can bring problems into the whole family. A father, a husband, a wife, both of them are creating problems within the home. And so it is a very disastrous situation. Man is basically left to be led by his own soul. His, his, his will, his emotions, his desires. Basically, man is a feely kind of person. And he does things on the basis of how he feels and what he feels like. If he feels depressed, if he feels happy, if he feels rejected, if he feels accepted, if he feels empowered, if he feels weak. These soulish emotions are going to be the basic things that lead the man. But in general, what happened to man when he fell and passed on to all of his sons and daughters, which is us... He is passed on to us because of the soulish life, instant gratification. That's what men want, instant gratification. That is a tragedy. As we see from Esau, any of us will sell our birthrights for a bowl of soup. We will sell out the best that God has for us in the future for an immediate gratification in the present. Not only is that, but man, because even though he's spiritually dead, he's very much spiritually alive. Man is fascinated with spiritual things. He has a spiritual fascination. Thus, the man filling himself with the occult. Entertainment, movies, music, everything is a doorway into that dark world because man is fascinated with spiritual things because even though he's dead spiritually, he's still very much spiritual. He also is filled with selfish ambition and power. He is in desire for his own good. He's everything is looking out for himself and also he has created a world of wars and abuse and satanic alliances that would be commonplace in every generation of man since the fall of man. Man is actually worse than an animal. He is worse than an animal because he has been created in the image of God with certain characteristics and capabilities that do not exist anywhere else in the animal kingdom. As you remember from your studies in Genesis, 
we understand that man was created with the power of dominion. He has the ability to subdue the things that are in this world and to rule over them. So even in that, you know, man is number one in everything, you know, and so he tries to have dominion over everything in the world. And so man has intelligence, man has creative ability, man has imagination, man can produce things, think things, dream things, and then man can create those things because he's made in the image of God. You don't see animals doing this. You don't see monkeys doing this. You don't see these types of things, but man does it in regards to whatever he thinks about. If he's given the time and he's given the resources, he can eventually produce it. Traveling to outer space, orbiting the earth, sending things out and sending pictures back from the furthest reaches of our galaxy. Nothing but man has been able to produce those types of things in the earth. So man is filled with creative ability. He's ambitious and he's a dreamer. And as a result of that, he is very dangerous because he is left to his own intelligence of what he thinks is right and what he thinks is wrong. Just as we might have scientists who are wanting to try to develop certain types of diseases that are in animals that are not in man, but they want to somehow create that disease so it affects man because we think we know what is best. And yet those could be the very things that are happening right now in science labs around the world. That could be the very thing that Revelation speaks about in the opening of the tribulation where there are pestilences and diseases that literally kill a quarter to a half of the world's population. But man thinks he's doing right. He thinks he's smart, but he is so extremely dangerous. So when God left the man... Very real demon powers and principalities of darkness would seek to fill the vacuum that was within the spirit of man. And man with his deep fascination for spiritual things would readily open the door to these demon powers that would be coming to him. And you see that all across the the world and in every generation and in every religion except for Christianity, you see the dabbling into occultic powers, men going into things that God has absolutely forbidden, even in those religions that some want to accept as evangelical or Christian, such as maybe Catholicism and other things that prays to the dead and gives offerings to the dead. God said, have nothing to do with the dead. You're not to communicate with the dead. You're not to do those types of things. When you pray, you pray to God through Jesus Christ. And God said, this is an abomination to me. Wizardry and witchcraft and horoscopes and all of these types of things. Harry Potter. It's not just an innocent movie you're watching. You're opening the door to demonic activities. And then you wonder one day, what's going on with my kids You know, why are they living this kind of life? Because we open the door to that dark power. Or whether it's books like that or whatever it might be is extremely dangerous. It's not innocent. It never is. Because there's a vacuum in man and Satan is there to fill that vacuum with demonic power. And he would seek. And the reason he wants to fill that vacuum with demonic power is easy to understand. Because you are created in the image of God. Because you are the apple of God's eye. You are the prize of his creation. 
And if there is one thing that God has made in all of the universe that Satan could most offend God with, it would be to deal with you and to make you an enemy of God. And so that's what the devil would like to do. Second of all, if you are the one that has been created with the power to have dominion over the earth and Satan knows that, then how can Satan fill the earth with his glory? Fill the man with his spirit. And if Satan can fill the man with his spirit and Satan can operate through the man, then the power of Satan will fill the earth. And Satan knows that. So Satan seeks to fill the vacuum that exists within lost men. And so you have to understand that it is always the battle. Everything is always being engaged for this, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And you decide which kingdom is going to operate in your life. And so it's very important that you understand it. But man would readily join in with Satan and become in alliance with him and make war with God. And man has been known as the enemy of God. He hates God. He is the hater of good things. He despises God. He despises the ways of God. And all of this has come because of the rage that is in man. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm not going to turn there. I hope you're familiar with it. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the God of this world being Satan. And how there is a course that is running through the world. And the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Among whom we all had our lifestyle in times past. Until we were saved and born again, and the Spirit of God was restored to our spirit, which means the new birth. But until that moment, we were all the enemies of God. The Spirit of disobedience operated in every one of us. The Bible says no man is his own power or his own king. You're either the slave of righteousness or the slave of sin. You're either the slave of Jesus or the slave of the devil. Jesus made it very clear. If you are not for me, you are against me. There is no middle ground. And so this is it. And so this is what is primarily what I want us to talk about as far as man and his life in Egypt. In Mark chapter 7, I think it is important for us to understand something very significant. That Jesus identifies with mankind. Because I think a lot of things are credited to the devil when they really originate from man. And I say this to you because we give the devil far too much credit. I think that men could be as mean or meaner than him. And I believe that man has given the devil ideas. We don't know how creative the devil is. We don't know the, the the potential of his imaginations and his ability to create what he imagines. We don't know how much of that ability exists within him. But we do know that it exists within the man. And so I believe it was men that have given devils ideas how we could torture each other. How we could wreck each other. How we could hurt each other. And I believe these imaginations in man and these inventions in man gave devils ideas that they may not have even recognized before. Jesus says this in Mark 
7 verse 20, he said, That which comes out of the man that defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart of men, not from devils, but from the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, imaginations, and inventions, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the man. And that's what Satan has to work with. Satan has three quivers in his, in his, three arrows in his quiver. It's all he's ever had. It's all he's ever used. All he ever needs. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And all he has to do is begin to entice everything that's in the heart of man. Because don't excuse yourself from this list. That's in you. That's in me. And we will use our fallen nature and our soul and what we think is right and wrong to fulfill these things in our life and justify it. And continue to be the enemies of God. And so therefore we are in desperate need to be saved. We're in desperate need to be redeemed, not from the devil and from hell, but from ourselves, from our own hearts, from our own pride, from our own thinking that I know what is best for me. So that we can humble ourselves before God and we can be able to understand that God knows what's best for me and I need to have communion with the Holy Ghost Because if there is a vacuum in my spirit, I want God to fill it. I want the king of peace to fill it. The king of light to fill it. I do not want the king of darkness to fill it. And so that is your choice. And you're not going to go through life with an empty heart. It is going to be filled by something. And so you give your hearts to Jesus Christ and he fills your heart. And so we begin to live that life. And as we come to this, I'm just letting you understand, in general, that is all men. And what happens is we need to be saved. And I hope that what one thing you're understanding is, though the devil is our enemy, and hell is certainly a place of torment and punishment that not even God wants us to go to, and we're given an opportunity to escape it, one of the chief enemies of your life is yourself, or if I may say, your flesh. And so we need to learn to be free from our flesh. It doesn't mean your flesh will go away. It doesn't mean your flesh will cease to exist. You've got to learn how to overcome him. All right? And so if we can, what I'd like to touch on now is how our flesh would be representative of our life in Egypt. It would be representative of the Egyptian taskmasters that ruled over us and gave us a life of hardship and a life of bondage and a life of very great demand that would keep us from God and keep us from the worship of God and keep us from the promises of God. This is our flesh. It is amazing thing. If if you could understand the flesh as the Egyptian taskmasters, and you understand Israel going through the wilderness and how often they wanted to go back to Egypt. So think about that. Think about as believers, how often you want to go back to the flesh. You want to go back to the leeks and the garlic. 
You want to go back to those things because there was some kind of comfort in them. There was some type of peace in them. You would even create a new God and a new ruler and a new leader over your life that would take you back to Egypt. Take you back to the flesh. And whether that is indulging in sin or whether that is going back to Moses and the law to be more holy. Whatever takes us back to the flesh is a disaster. All right, so I want you to understand that and we're going to go to Romans chapter 7 and I wanted to read just a few things. This is a beautiful chapter. It's a wonderful passage and in this particular testimony of the Apostle Paul and really what Paul does in Romans chapter 7 is give a very brief testimony of his life outside of Jesus coming into Christ and then coming into the fullness of the Holy Spirit and victory in Jesus Christ. And so I think it is important for us to understand that. But he says this in 719, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, I don't have time to go through this with you, but it is a very interesting study. If you would go through the book of Romans and define every time sin is mentioned, you will find that it's not speaking of the same thing every time it mentions the word sin in the book of Romans. Sometimes when Paul mentions the word sin, for all have sinned, He is talking about the action or the transgression against the specific commandment of God. But when he talks about sin here in chapter 7 verse 20, he is not talking about a particular transgression or action of wrong. He is actually talking about that which operates the nature of sin, the nature of rebellion that is operating within men. The flesh is what he's talking about. And so it's very interesting if you would do that study, I think you would be blessed with it. And so he says, if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And so I just want us to stop there and I want us to think about this. He's talking about the struggle with his flesh. He's talking about. His inability to discover or find the power to overcome the flesh. But he does perfectly tell us, I do have an inner man. And this inner man delights in the law of God. It delights in the way of God. But how to fulfill that, I'm not finding the strength for it. Now, I believe with all of my heart, because of Scripture, not because I just choose to believe this or want to believe this, But because of clear scripture, I believe that Paul is discussing an event in his life where he is born again. And he is wrestling with this desire to walk with God and to be holy and to be victorious, but not finding the strength or the power to do it. And we would call this partly the process of sanctification, where we're learning to live by the life of Jesus Christ. And Paul is learning to live by that life. And so I have many reasons to believe that he is giving a testimony as a born-again person here. The word sin is flesh in this passage. In the flesh dwells no good thing. 
It is at enmity with God. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says the law is not, the flesh is not subject to the law of God. It can't do the law of God. It is impossible. Chapter 8, verse 7. It says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't say that they won't try. But they just cannot. Now we know that there are people who will try to please God in the flesh. The book of Galatians tells us this. They made a good show in the flesh. They made a good effort in the flesh. But they still fell short. And if you'll keep your place here. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And notice this. Very dogmatic statement. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.29. No flesh. God is going to do things so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And so God is committed to this standard that no flesh is going to glory in my presence. But everything is going to glory in my son, Jesus Christ, because it is through Jesus Christ. He is made to us wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. And the struggle that Paul was in in Romans chapter 7 was his understanding of the way of God and wanting to do it. And because he understood that, he tried to do that in his flesh, but he was failing. And he could not do what he knew that he should do, but he did that which he knew he shouldn't do. Because Paul is testifying to us, regardless of how much you want to please God and how much determination you have to please God, how much willpower you have, you're not going to do it. You're not going to get the glory when you go to heaven that you did it. You're going to have to learn here in this world that your righteousness is Jesus, your wisdom is Jesus, your sanctification is Jesus. He's made that unto you. And so this whole process in your life when you're being born again is to somehow learn now how to live not from your soul anymore, which is the way you lived your whole life by your emotions and your will and what you thought was right and wrong. But now you've got to learn to live by the Holy Ghost of God who's now come back into your spirit and made you alive and that's been dead for so long you got to learn to live that way now and when you learn to live by the spirit you're going to know that's the victory not me not what I'm able to vow and do but what God is able to do in me as a result of his spirit or the life of Christ that is in me we're going to touch on that some more but I hope that you understand it But I want to come to this and maybe bring this to somewhat of a close. And I want you to see and understand that it is not God's purpose or desire for you to remain in that condition. It is not his desire for you to remain in Egypt. It is not his desire for you to remain under Egyptian taskmasters. It is not God's desire for you to remain in the operation of your flesh. He wants to bring you out of that. Now, there is no reformation for the flesh. There is nothing in the Bible that tells you how to have a better flesh. 
Your flesh is wicked to the core. There's nothing good in it. It will never be good. And the only answer to the flesh is death. It's the only answer. Now remember, death means a lot of different things. Death to the spirit is something different than death to the physical life. And so when we understand that our flesh is dead, we have to reckon it dead because we believe that it's been judged in the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I don't have to listen to it and I don't have to submit to it. A greater power has come to me that gives me authority over it. So if I try to make this flesh behave, it's going to deceive me. And it's going to be religious and it's going to wreck people's lives. All right, so understand that. So God's purpose in Exodus chapter 12, what God had to do to get Israel out of Egypt is very beautiful here. But he tells us this in Exodus 12, 13. And he says, the blood shall be to you. This is 12, 13. The blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And so this was God's desire. And he said, and this day shall be unto you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And so this is God's desire in in salvation is to apply blood over our life. And on that basis, we are able to escape death. And we are able to escape wrath and judgment. And when this happened in in Egypt for Israel that first night, there were no questions asked as to who was in the house. What they were like, what they did. Let's say it's a Sunday morning when the Angel of death is passing through Egypt and there's no, where were you Saturday night? Where were you Friday? What were you doing? How many times did you curse this past week? Did you drink? Did you get drunk? Did you lust? Did you commit adultery? None of those questions are asked. There's only one thing that's being looked for and that is the blood. And if I see the blood, whoever is under that blood in that house, I will save them. Praise God. Because we cannot save ourselves. And that is why the blood of Jesus is so important that it is applied to your life. Not a, not a confession, not a, a, a prayer that you pray. But the actual blood of Jesus Christ becomes effectual for you. And the Passover was not so much that that house would be skipped over by the angel of death, but God would pass over it. If you will, God would lay himself on that house so death couldn't come to it. And this is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit who comes to believers who have trusted in the blood of Jesus that God seals them with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he covers them and they are preserved and they are saved from wrath and from judgment. But even in that house under the blood, they're still in Egypt. And they still have these taskmasters. And if you're aware of the story, even when they are led in their exodus by Moses and they're out of Egypt, what do the taskmasters do? I want them back. And that's what the flesh does. Okay, you gave your heart to Jesus. You're under the blood. You're going to go to heaven when you die. But I got you on earth. 
I want you back. And the flesh is going to try and it's going to try. It's going to come after you and come after you. And these are the things that happen. You're going to understand one reason baptism is so important and so beautiful. And so God raises up Moses. He brings a deliverer. And he gives them the blood of this lamb so that they might be spared from death. But it was not God's desire for them to just be spared from the night of death. But it was God's desire for them to leave Egypt and go to the promised land, Canaan, right? And so it is not God's desire for you to just escape death and hell and the wrath of God. But it is his desire for you to leave Egypt and come to him. And live in his promises and live in his blessings. And this is Passover is a foreshadowing of Jesus and his death. John 1 says, as John the the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the apostle Paul said, Jesus is our Passover slain for us. He was the Lamb of God that bore the judgment in place of all of the people. Peter said that Jesus bore our sins on that accursed tree. He suffered the just for the unjust. Why? Peter said, in order to bring us to God. Not to keep you where you are, but to bring you to God. And this was the desire of the Lord. And so Jesus didn't want us to just escape death. He wanted to bring us somewhere. And all of Israel, all they had to do was apply the blood. And God asked us to do that. And when judgment descended upon Egypt, Israel was escaped, and then Moses would lead them out of bondage. And I want you to read this with me in 1 Corinthians 10. I think it's important that we read it, and we'll come back to this. But he said, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now listen, they they have gone through the blood. They're leaving Egypt. They're going towards their promise. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And why were they overthrown in the wilderness? We're content with God. I want what I had. In Egypt. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So all of that was for us as an example. Neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed. And fell in one day 23,000 people. Neither let us test or tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the servants, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, not you. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
Wherefore, my beloved, dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from it. Have no other God but God. Have no other hope but Him. No other trust but your trust in the Lord. Because this is our hope. And so they're leaving Egypt. And if you go back, and it's an example for us, right? So very quickly in Romans chapter 6. I just kind of want to get to this. In Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 3. Or, or we'll just begin in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue in the flesh? Under the principle of sin? So that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to the flesh or sin or the sin principle live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Just as they were baptized into Moses in the cloud. And they went through the sea with Moses. You've been baptized with Christ. Something greater and better. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this. And this this is the summation. That our old man. That flesh is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. And he that is dead is freed from sin. And so this is important for us to understand. I'm going to tell you we have a baptism today. There's something to that. It is not just some ceremony. It is not just some outward declaration. It's a spiritual thing. And we may not understand the full significance of it. But when somebody goes down in that water because of their faith in Jesus Christ, something spiritual goes on. I can tell you this. It was wonderful to be in that house at Passover underneath that blood and being spared from death. But something significant happened when they followed Moses under that cloud and through that sea and went into that wilderness. And now all of their enemies were dead in the Red Sea. Something was significant. So don't ever belittle or play down water baptism. If you've never gone through this, Jesus tells you to. He doesn't suggest you do it. It is a command of the Lord. That you are baptized and you follow the Lord in baptism. Because something spiritual happens. And you don't need to even understand everything spiritual that happens. You just need to believe it is something important to Jesus. And he's going to do something in my life as a result of it. So let him do it. If you've if you never done that. It is extremely important. And so I'm going to close here because of the time that we have. But I just want to encourage you, beloved, to understand that you have a flesh and it's not going to be reformed and it's not going to be made better. And if your Christianity is the type of Christianity that is thankful to God that you've been saved and born again and you're going to go to heaven when you die, but you still live under the taskmaster of the flesh and it has authority over your life and you think you're going to get it to behave better, You think because you went through Passover in Egypt that you're going to wake up the next day and all of the Egyptians are going to recognize your God and they're going to change their attitude towards you and be favorable to you. You've got another thing coming. They're going to hate you even more and your flesh is going to hate you even more. And you've got to learn that God does not want me to live here under the power of this flesh. He doesn't want me to be holy by the power of my flesh. He wants me to count this flesh as dead. That old man crucified with Jesus Christ. And there is a new life that has come to me. And that is the Holy Ghost. And I must by faith learn to commune with him. 
so that I might know the victory that is in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you in your precious name for the glorious liberty that you've given us in Jesus. I pray, I praise you and thank you for the gift of the Holy Ghost. I thank you for sanctification. I thank you for your great patience, God, that you have given towards us and your grace that teaches us how to live godly and soberly in this world and how to deny godliness. I thank you, God, for the victory of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that though we have come to grace, we don't live in sin or the power of sin anymore. That is not your desire for us to live in Egypt. You desire for us to live in the promise and in the fullness and the victory of Jesus Christ. And that is our birthright. And let us not sell it for a bowl of soup, God. I thank you so much, Lord, that you've given us examples where it was disastrous for people who were providing us that example. But God, let us come to Jesus and let us not have any idols in our life. Let us have no other God but you, no other hope but you, no other Savior but you, no other sanctifier but you, no other wisdom but you, no other righteousness but you. And Lord, let our hearts be glad in you and love you. And we give you the glory today in Jesus' name. Amen.